Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
Black Star Network is here. I'm real um, revolutionary right now. Like, Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. I thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roller. I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Today is Monday, January 31st, 2022. Coming up, a Roller Martin unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Uh, the mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, has uh, he has searched for suspended uh, detectives involved in the Lawrence Smith Fields and Brenda Lee Rawls cases. Will be joined by Darnell Crossland, who is the attorney for. Uh, the Smithfields family, the Tennessee officer uh, who fired uh, the uh, last two shots into the body of Landon Eastep. Well, folks, uh, he has been stripped of his police powers. Could that mean there are charges on the way? We'll talk to uh, the attorney who is representing Eastep's family here uh, regarding the investigation. A federal judge denies a plea deal for, for the McMichaels, of course, the, the father and son uh, who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. We're going to explain to you what the outcry was about from the family, but also the legal understanding of that plea deal. We'll be talking with the family attorney, Lee Merritt. Suicide in the black community, folks, is on the rise. Tonight, we have a mental health care expert, Troy Beyer, to provide solutions for those who think there is no way out but to end it all. Plus, several HBCUs have been the target of bomb threats again. We'll tell you about that. Uh, and also, Georgia prosecutors asking for protection after a perceived threat from Donald Trump and his supporters. President Joe Biden's nominee for the Federal Reserve Board, Lisa Cook, is being bombarded with racist and sexist attacks. And if you know, people of color have, uh, first of all, poor overall oral health. That's right. In our Fit Live Wednesday, we will talk about how to make sure your mouth is all always taken care of. Folks, it's time to bring the funk of Roland Martin Unfiltered from the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Folks, Bridgeport, Connecticut mayor has ordered two of the detectives involved in the Lawrence Smith Fields and Brenda Lee Rawls deaths uh, to be placed on administrative leave. In a two-minute video, Mayor Joe uh, Guerin addressed the crisis, addressed the cases, folks, and the neglect of Bridgeport police. I once again want to express my condolences to the families of Lawrence Smith Fields and also the family of Brenda Lee Rawls. After reviewing these matters even more closely, 
I've now directed Deputy Chief Baraja of the Bridgeport Police Department to immediately put on leave the two officers who are the subject of the Bridgeport Internal Affairs Investigation and Disciplinary Action for their lack of sensitivity to the public and their failure to follow police procedure in the handling of these two matters. Let me be clear, effective immediately, both Detective Lanos and Detective Cronin are suspended from duties and put on administrative leave from the Bridgeport Police Department until such time as the OIA investigation and disciplinary cases have been completed regarding Lawrence Smithfield's and Brenda, Lee's, Brenda Lee Rawls cases. The Bridgeport Police Department has high standards for officer sensitivity, especially in matters involving the death of a family member. It is an unaccepted failure if policies were not followed. To the families, friends, and all who care about human decency, that that should be shown in these situations, in this case by members of the police department, I'm very sorry. In addition, the officer who was in charge of overseeing these matters has retired from the department as of this past Friday. To again make it clear, both to members of the public and to the department, insensitivity, disrespect in action, or deviation from policy will not be tolerated by me or others in this administration. My disappointment and demand for accountability in these and all other matters brought to my attention will remain until all the questions are answered to the satisfaction of all. It should also be noted that the untimely death of Lawrence Smithfields and Brenda Lee Rawls are both still under active investigation and have been reassigned to members of the Bridgeport Police Department to resolve. I want to thank Attorney Crossland and the family and the thousands of others for reaching out and asking the questions that needed to be asked and that still need answers. I as mayor, but also as a father, cannot fully comprehend what must be going through. I can only pledge my continued support to try and ease your pain by getting answers and holding those responsible accountable. Darnell Crossland, he is the uh, Smithfields family attorney, joins us right now from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Darnell, glad to have you back. So one of the cops just mysteriously retires? Yes. Um, you know, I'm looking at your 1906. I'm reminded of the seven jewels. I'm glad to see that you're wearing that shirt. Um, so uh, what, what, we, what we've been learning here is that this department is in shambles. And uh, we've been saying that from day one. So it's either a combination of incompetence, um, disorganization, or straight-out racism. But both of these families didn't get the treatment that they should have gotten when their loved ones died. And my office has since been retained to handle the Brenda Lee Rawls family case as well. And the mayor said just now that he wants to thank me and a thousand others for asking the questions that needed to be asked but still have not been answered. Well, that's exactly what we're looking for now is answers. So we're glad that they've taken this step in the right direction um, to at least acknowledge liability and responsibility for the inaction of these police officers. But now we want answers and we want some action. So obviously, let's just be clear, pressure made all of this possible. This was not 
the decision of Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, an independent decision. It was the pressure. It was from you, from activists, from the family, from the media that forced the mayor's hand to take this action. Absolutely. Well, what I've been saying, and I've made a public statement, uh, which is quite clear. Listen, the world and people around the country have responded to our cries for justice. They heard us from as far as Hawaii. And yet still, a month and a half later, we're just hearing from the mayor's office. So my question was simple. If they can hear us from Hawaii, what took you so long to hear us? And so we're saying today that uh, we should have been heard from day one. And I'm not sure if it's political or what it is, but we're glad that we're finally being heard. But when the cameras uh, go off, we still need to have things happening. So we're going to hold this mayor accountable and this administration accountable. And we announced today that the only way that you can hold these people accountable is, as uh, Billy Murphy uh, once said to me, who did the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, is that you got to let them pay. And we've announced that we're going to be filing a $30 million lawsuit asking for punitive damages, also policy change. But we must let them pay. They have insurances that um, these cities are bounded, bonded by, and these insurance companies are going to get tired of paying out these claims, and they're going to demand that there's more accountability so that they don't have to pay. The, uh, one of the, last week, the president pro tem of the city council was on our show, and he said that the council was going to write a letter asking the state to take over the investigation. Has that happened? Uh, no, I, actually, I watched that show of yours, and I know you, you kind of try to hammer this gentleman down to see, uh, is it something that he's just thinking about, or is they going to put a bill before the city council, or what's the procedure? And uh, Maria Pereira, who's a city councilwoman for the district that both these women were found dead in, um, she hasn't said anything about that procedure, so I'm not sure uh, how he's going about that, but it has not happened yet. That was interesting, because he said that was supposed to have been done by Thursday. It didn't happen. Um, so only thing that has happened since then, and I'll be glad to share with you, is that I sent a letter objecting to the ME's report. The, there was a cause of death and a manner. Causes the toxins that were found inside of Lawrence Smith Fields. And we are shocked that they have fentanyl and antihistamines found in her. Um, because obviously we know antihistamines put you to sleep and make you um, uh, unfocused. So it's, it appears that that's a primary date rape drug. The manner could... The, the, the ME's office told me it could be choking, um, homicide, manslaughter, accident. So my question to them is, how did you deem this an accident in total disregard for the facts and the evidence that's here that she was with a, some another gentleman right before she died, drinking and possibly drugged? So we're objecting to that because that's another way to just disregard black women and say it was just an accident, nothing to see here, folks. Go about your business. And we're not going to go about our business and, and walk away from this. Uh, has the family done their own um, independent autopsy? And if so, when are those results going to be released? So the, uh, the, the father um, of Lawrence Smith Fields uh, commissioned a gentleman who uh, works at the Stanford Hospital here and also does that type of autopsy. Um, and as far as I know, that the autopsy is not completed. And uh, also, the father told me last week that there were some uh, funds that were being demanded in order for them to release what they've had so far. So thankfully, we have a GoFundMe, and, um, and I'm going to be speaking with the family to clear the necessary funds so we have no holdups. So, so our own pathologists can give us their, their, um, their findings.
All right, then. And, of course, uh, just give out that GoFund information again for folks uh, uh, who would like to contribute. Yeah, so please contribute. If you go into Lawrence Smith Fields on the GoFundMe, it comes right up. And, uh, again, Lawrence Smith Fields on GoFundMe. And please help us support us with uh, investigators as well as pathologists to find the truth and what happened here on this journey to justice. All right, Darnell Crossland, we surely appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank, thank you, Roland. Uh, my panel, folks, Dr. Juliana Malvo, she is the Dean of College of Ethnic Studies, California State University, Los Angeles, Dr. Omakongo Dabinga, Professorial Lecturer, School of International Science, American University, American International Service, American University, and Reverend Jeff Carr, founder of the Affinity Fellowship in Nashville, Tennessee. Glad to have all three of you here. Uh, Omakongo, I want to start with you. Uh, you know, whenever cities make these decisions, you're putting police officers, you're suspending them, you're trying to quiet the noise as much as you can, and it is abundantly clear they realize there are some serious screw-ups in this police department. Oh, most definitely. And, and one of the people, you know, we wouldn't ex expect you to add to that list of people who've been calling out what's going on is you, Roland. I mean, every night you're hitting this hard, and you brought it to probably more attention than anybody else. And so, once again, it's, it's just amazing how this platform ha has done work to, to revolutionize things across this country. This police department, as the attorney said, is, is in shambles. And the fact of the matter is we have, you know, the, the, the first sister, Rawls, almost two months she's been dead. And then with Lauren, we're over a month now. And the fact of the matter is, is that this police department does not care. And they really do think, by what you were just talking about, by having these little actions here and there, that we're going to go away. No, proverbial heads need to roll. We need to do more to find out about this. The, the lead detective or whoever who had the opportunity to resign, they let these two black bodies be thrown away. And if Richport thinks that these little actions that were done today to put these guys on leave is going to stop us, they need to do more work to clean up their action now. It's like Johnny Cochran said, you know, you got to hit people in their pocketbooks and their hearts and minds will follow. But we have to make sure that they know that whatever judgment they can give to this family is never going to be enough because we are going to make sure that Bridgeport and every other department across the country knows that our black bodies and our black children and our black elders, you know, uh, Rawls was in their, in their 50s, I believe, they matter. They matter. And every single day we're going to fight to draw more attention. But if they did their job in the first place, we wouldn't need to. How do you let families have family members die and you don't notify them? People got to walk up to people, in the case of Rawls, walk up to a man's house and be like, oh, she died over the weekend. And you call yourself an organization that protects and serves the people? You don't protect and serve all of us because you clearly didn't care about them. But we're going to make sure that you do one way or another because this family will never get justice. All they can get is accountability, and they're going to get it. Uh, this is the uh, GoFundMe for Lawrence Smith Fields. Uh, so far, 2,600 people have made donations. Uh, they've raised uh, nearly $70,000 uh, as a result. Uh, so that's uh, that particular uh, GoFundMe. Now, we talk about uh, the, uh, the other case uh, that is uh, Brenda R R Rawls. There's also uh, a GoFundMe uh, that's been set up uh, for her as well. Uh, and uh, that one is, uh, they, they've just started that one. That was created one day ago, and you will see there, uh, three folks have donated so far, and so their target goal is to raise $50,000, and $200 has been raised thus far there uh, as well. Julian, um, this is, you know, we talk about this all the time, that when we have these cases where African-Americans uh, have been impacted, uh, it requires uh, protests, yelling, screaming, hiring of lawyers, doing media attention, uh, just to do the right thing. 
Roland, these cases both break my heart um, as a sister who has led black women organizations, as a, an educator who's seen young people thrown away, as Omakongo has said, thrown away. Um, how does a white boy, and I'm just going to call it like that, a white boy goes, oh, I found how she was dead, and he just walks away? What the, you know, what is that? I mean, I don't even understand it, but the fact is that people are contributing, people are fighting, people are unwilling to let these lives be tossed. And even as we talk about these lives, what we have to talk about is how many lives have not been investigated? How many times have Black women and men just been seen as throwaway human beings? And the little mayor, with his little comment after the fact, um, you know, whatever. That's all I have to say to him is whatever. What they need to do is bring the feds in, and that might not even help, to audit that police department. Because if those two cases are being dealt with that way, how many other cases have they had? Uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut is not different from Harlem, New York, or from Los Angeles, California. This happens all over the country. But finally, Roland, partially thanks to you and partially thanks to protests, you have people who are saying, uh-uh, no more. But we, have, we, we can't make this episodic. We have to stay on top of it. Because we only make it episodic. We say, okay, that was one case. No, we have millions of Black bodies that have been buried somewhere because somebody didn't give a hoot. The, uh, Jeff, um, the thing that, um, that is, is, is so clear uh, to me is that this is what we call a callous disregard for black life. Surely, surely. Um, first off, I want to say thanks to everything that you've done, Roland. Uh, literally, I know people who did not know about this case until they heard about it on this show. So I think with what everyone has said, what Dr. Obinga said, uh, Odebinga said, what Dr. Malboa said, very, very, very clear that we're talking about a disregard of black life, but how do we push back against that? How do we create uh, spaces for us to stand for ourselves and to continue to put pressure on the power systems that are out there until they buckle? We're seeing now that in this digital age, we have a remarkable opportunity to rally people that we didn't have before. When I was in college and I was an early activist, we used to have to actually type out things, put them on flyers, slide them under the doors, go out into the neighborhoods, tack things on telephone posts, get the wheat paste and just paste it over the electrical boxes to try to raise awareness. Now we have the internet, we have the digital space, and more importantly, we have Black-owned media like this, which gives us the ability to tell our story, to push the narrative, to get people into a space of awareness and alignment. So I don't want to minimize that. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to now continue to push. We've seen in recent years, uh, there are two points on this I want to make. One about how police police police, and then how we stand together using the digital space to force this issue. We always have talked about uh, a step in the right direction. We've heard the uh, accolades being given to the mayor here for making a step in the right direction. There were protests that have been taking place over the last seven or eight years that have now begun to evolve. At first, if you remember, people were calling for accountability. They were calling for police officers to be fired. We realized that wasn't enough. 
Then we were calling for police officers to be officers to be indicted. We realized, especially with the George Floyd issue, that that indictment was not enough. We had people celebrating the indictment, and in the middle of celebrating the indictment, we said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're seeing that these officers are getting off and being irresponsible and not being punished. Now we're right. talking about from the beginning to the end, firing, conviction, putting in prison, putting in jail, and on top of that now, we're paying for it. In this circumstance and situation, I'm not sure that there is any relief by bringing in the feds. In the state of Tennessee, which we'll discuss a little bit later, there are issues with the policing. And what happens is the district attorney and the city announce, well, we're going to make this transparent by turning it over to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. We're going to allow the state and the feds to investigate the cops here, and that makes us believe that it's transparent. Transparent, But as long as there is a code of blue, alluding to something Dr. Malvo pointed out, we can't fully trust that the code of blue is going to indict and convict itself. So hitting them in the pocket, coming together around GoFundMe, we now have no excuse for being able to support each other across the board. And as the attorney, Attorney Crossland said, Brother Crossland said, we now have an opportunity to stand for ourselves, support ourselves, and push this until we hit them in the pocket. Uh, absolutely. And so, folks, we're going to continue uh, focusing on this case. When new details arise, we certainly uh, will be right there giving you an update on exactly what's going on. All right, folks, I uh, gotta go to a break. When we come back, uh, our daily black and missing update uh, for you as well. Plus, uh, we'll talk about a variety of other cases later in the show. We'll talk about what took place today in Georgia for two of the men uh, who were convicted in the death of Ahmaud Arbery. The family was uh, not happy at all with a proposed Department of Justice uh, plea deal. We'll tell you what the judge has decided, but also break down exactly what that plea deal was all about. Folks, you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. Don't you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network.
up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hi, this is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Dion Cole from Blackish. Hey, everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. All right, folks, uh, Mac Bell has been missing since January 11th. The 16-year-old has not been in contact with anyone since. He's a native of Miami, Florida, is 5 feet 7 inches tall, weighing 120 pounds with black hair and eyes. If you have any information, please contact the Miami Police Department at 305-579-6111. That's 305-579-6111. The family of a man killed by police in Florida the day after Christmas demands answers from police about what took place. Titusville police killed James Lowry after being called for a woman being assaulted. The family's attorney, Benjamin Crump and Natalie Jackson, say police have ignored their request for the 911 call and body camera footage. Instead, the family received 22 pages of blacked out information from the police. Uh, this is one of the stories that, again, one of the stories that uh, that we've been covering. Uh, the family has been, of course, uh, demanding action. This is, uh, again, it, it goes to folks. Uh, what we keep trying uh, to tell you is this, this constant situation where uh, families lose, lose loved ones. They don't feel as if uh, they're getting the right information uh, from police. They're not sharing the right information uh, as well. Uh, this here uh, was uh, a news conference uh, that took place uh, January 28th, three days ago, uh, where family members uh, spoke to the news media. I'm going to try to get, play this uh, in just a second. Uh, where family members spoke to the media trying to get uh, tr tr uh, you know, uh, try, trying to get answers, and so as we said, uh, Ben Crump as well as uh, Natalie Jackson. Now she's worked all she worked also on the Trayvon Martin case with Ben Crump, uh, representing this family. Uh, I'm going to have this in a second, uh, but it just it just it just sort of just continues. Uh, city after city after city, uh, we see uh, these type of stories and how uh, they how they negatively uh, affect us. And so let's see if I can uh, pull this up. Uh, right now. So let's see. Here we go. James Lowry's family emotionally calling for the release of more information on the 40 year old's death. <laughs> the family in agony since the night after Christmas when Titusville police say an officer responding to a domestic violence call spotted a man who police say matched the suspect's description. Next, police say that man ran from the officer and then got in a fight with the officer when that officer shot him. Shot fired! Shot fired! Do you have a location for the DSW for medical? I'm, I'm not sure right now. We just got blood. It looks like it might be a headshot. Police say the FDLE continues its excessive force investigation. James Larry Life Matters! Meanwhile, attorneys Ben Crump and Natalie Jackson say they're filing a public records lawsuit after police rejected their request to get a hold of body camera video, 911 audio, and police reports. This is what we got, 22 pages of black, blank, 
Chief John Lau responds, all evidence will be shared and police will meet with reporters for the first time when the investigation is complete. Police have not answered if Lowry was the domestic violence suspect. His family believes he was misidentified. Police did not provide a time frame when the investigation might conclude. In Titusville, Brevard County, I'm James Sparbero, getting results news six. So again, that's a local news station and did their report there. What, what jumps out at me here, Julian, um, is he matches the description. Now, people always go, why would you run? Because it's the cops in America. <laughs> Here's what jumps out at the cops. Okay, so you got a call of a domestic violence situation. You see a guy, he takes off. Your reaction is to shoot? No, Roland, you match the description. Omakongo matches the description. <laughs> Jeff matches the description. And if I were male, yeah. I would match the description. The fact is that any black person matches the description when they decide that to shoot first and ask questions later. This is the absurdity of where we are and how we live right now. This they And they won't even <clears throat> acknowledge he probably was not the person who was involved in the domestic. He was probably just some dude walking down the street, minding his own business, and the police decided to murder him, to murder him. And why would he not run? Hell, anybody would run. You know, you see the police coming, you gonna run. You don't want to be in that. You don't want to be bothered with that. It, you know, I hate, I'm sorry that I'm so emotional, but so many of these things keep happening and it hits us in our souls time and time and time again. I mean, Richard Wright wrote years, years, years ago about when a shooting happened in one place, black people all over the country felt it. And this is what's happening here. The mother's reaction, the mother's reaction really speaks to the fact that she knew her son was not up to no good. And then Sister Lawyer, who held up all those redacted pages, make it clear the police are unaccountable just unaccountable. So here we go over and over and over again. But the nonsense, he matched the description. Bubba the Fool matched the description. The, Bubba the matched the description. We always talk about, oftentimes, with these cases, uh, Jeff, and, and it's important that we do, your first reaction is to pull a gun out and start shooting. Somebody's running away from you, okay? No, let's be clear. Police roll up. No crime has been established. So why is you, why are you shooting? This is what happens with the pattern rollers. When we look at how we are defined in America, as Dr. Malvo said, we all fit the description. Uh, and don't get it twisted. I have a, a friend, I, I have a congregation that is made up of all sorts of people. You talk about races, ethnicities, orientations, genders, all of that. I have an associate who made a transition from the space of being a, a woman to the space of being a man. She's transgendered. And one of the biggest regrets she had was a huge apology. She said, you know, I got stopped by the police and I recently transitioned. And I've been stopped by the police before, but I have never in my life been treated like this. They grabbed me from the car. They wouldn't listen to anything they had to say. And they, she was completely disturbed now about this. She said, I've heard the experiences that black men have when they get pulled over 
And I know it was real. I feel it was real. I felt it with my brothers, but I experienced it now, and it meant something different. When we say, what happens when somebody runs? You're thinking in your mind, I've been there. I'm a grown man, a fully <clears throat> grown man. And sometimes right. this I, case is why they ran. Why they run. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you start thinking about it and you say, I got a better than 50% chance, maybe, <laughs> to preserve yep. my life. And you begin to think about, I'm just being honest here. You begin to think about your children. You begin to think about your family. You begin to think about the people in your community and the fact that based on someone's prejudgment of you, based on someone's preconceived notion, based on somebody else's blatant disregard, which is backed up by legalese that allows them to claim your life with impunity, and it makes you say, do I fight for this? Do I fight for my life? Because even if you tell me my life is not valuable, even if your system does not affirm me, I affirm enough of myself to say my life is valuable, my life is worth at least trying to fight for it so that I can walk away from this and deal with the legalese on the back end. When you think about uh, how, how this plays out in our families, we have to play, we have to understand one notion, domestic violence. Y'all know I talk about my family all the time. It's the backbone of everything that I am. My community is the backbone of everything that I am. I'm particularly sensitive to domestic violence. I've got an awesome wife. I've got a grown daughter and two little girls. And I guarantee you the sensitivity around domestic violence and the people that I pastor, it is there. It is 100%. We don't tolerate it. We don't support it. And yet still, domestic violence guilty or not guilty, is not an executable defense. It's Come not an offense. It's not something <clears throat> that you should be killed for by someone who has now named themselves judge, jury, and executioner. This is the issue. It's not about sullying someone's reputation. It's not saying that we are... Uh, uh, it's, it's about street justice. We live in a society where we can no longer... We can no longer allow street justice to be the order of the day. And that's squarely what the issue is. Until we start talking about that, we're going to see this cycle continue. The dangerous place is you reach a tipping point where what happens when you are making that decision goes from... I'm going to attempt to comply. I'm going to attempt to fight back to when a number of people actually begin to fight back. And that it is at that tipping point, call it the American Revolution, if you will, that people begin to say, I have a right to stand up and fight for my life. I think that's when we'll start seeing these things begin to shift in the other direction. You know, McCongo, uh, we, 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 we talk about this in terms of reactions. And again, why do people run? because of this. They say, you know what? I got a better chance of outrunning. Because even when they've been, even when there have been examples, you take the case um, in Columbus, Ohio, I forgot the brother's name, uh, where he was in his driveway, cop pulls up, you know, he gets shot and killed. All he doing is just working on his car in his garage. So he's on his property. Yep. Cop rolls mm -hmm. up, thinks he's pulling the gun out. It wasn't. He's shot and killed. I mean, this is the reality of being black in America when you're dealing with police. And, uh, and America needs to, <clears throat> excuse me, America needs to really hear us right now. I mean, look, look at us. We're sitting here, all professionals, vast experience in everything that we do, 
And we're all talking about this experience in the same vein because we've all lived it personally. We've seen it with members of our family. Now, imagine our brothers and sisters out there who may not have the same level of education or degrees, who might have like a misdemeanor or, you know, might have no access to be able to get other opportunities, and they also see the cops coming. Why and for what reason would they want to stick around? Because we have seen that when it comes down to what these cops do, I mean, Dr. Henry Lewis Gates, you're getting arrested or uh, uh, approached for breaking into his own house. We understand mm. that there is no degree, no profession, no amount of money that is going to protect you from this in any way, shape, or form. And this is another reason, Roland, why we need to make sure that we're putting up more pressure to um, Biden as it relates to the police reform, because even if there's not going to be the George Floyd Police Reform Act yet, because we're not giving up on that, he said that he was going to turn more of his actions or some of these executive orders and other things that he can do to start maybe creating things like police registries or putting these guys on blast in other way, shape, or form. Because we thought that after Trump left, maybe some of this stuff would subside. We thought after the insurrection, maybe some of this stuff would subside. We thought with Biden coming in and so many of these black appointees and all this, some of this stuff will subside. These guys are, these officers are more emboldened to do what they are doing today Body cams hasn't stopped it. Right. Not, uh, us recording our own videos with our own... Uh, you know, had a couple of situations with Chauvin and so on and so forth where it was effective, but by and large, those haven't even mattered. And now Republicans are trying to introduce laws where even personally recording these things are banned as well. We have to keep the pressure up, and America needs to hear us because this affects every single one of us with our complexion. And you have example after example, and I got to give kudos to Mr. Crump and Ms. Jackson and Lee Merritt and all of these other brothers and sisters out there who have to have so many families cry on their shoulders every single day, it seems, and they're still fighting for us because they know that our lives matter. All right, folks, uh, speaking of our lives matter, several historically black colleges and universities uh, have, were impacted by bomb threats uh, that were called <clears> into <throat> their campuses today. Southern University, uh, also uh, Bethune-Cookman University, Albany State, Bowie State, Delaware State, uh, folks, uh, Howard University. Uh, again, all of these institutions uh, were impacted today by these bomb pits. They went down on lockdown, issued shelter-in-place orders. Uh, again, uh, that's what we've been seeing. Now, the campuses were cleared, uh, and no hazardous materials were found. At least three HBCUs, including Howard, uh, received bomb threats earlier this month. And so clearly uh, it's coordinated uh, what is going on. And it it's a huge nuisance, of course, because it's also uh, screwing up uh, students who are in class. And so that's what we're seeing take place. Uh, folks, got to go to break. We come back. We're going to tell you about a black woman, a brilliant economist who is being attacked. It's racist. It's sexist. Oh, because they don't want to see the first black woman on the Federal Reserve. Hmm. Sounds familiar, huh? First black female vice president. Now you got the folks who are already attacking a black female Supreme Court justice who Biden ain't even nominated. I keep telling y'all, white fear is real in America. My book drops in September. 
You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Don't forget to download our app on all platforms. Of course, uh, you can do so. Uh, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox, as well as Samsung Smart TV. You want to do that so you can watch the new shows that we launched today. Uh, Deborah Owen's show uh, launched today. We're going to be re-airing that uh, right after today's show. Then, of course, uh, we have uh, Dr. Greg Carr, uh, also uh, Jackie Hood Martin, uh, Dr. Jackie Hood Martin show, and also for Roger Muhammad's uh, Daily uh, Culture Show. And, of course, uh, the next edition of Rolling with Roland airs on Wednesday when we talk with the acclaimed director, Bill Duke. You also want to support us, please, by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is real simple, to get 20,000 of our fans contributing a minimum of 50 bucks a year. Uh, that's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. Your resources makes it possible for us to do what we do. Last year, y'all were amazing. You contributed you contributed $827,000 to this show. I cannot tell you uh, how important that is because it is those resources that allow us to be able to move into this studio, uh, be able to purchase these uh, additional six robotic cameras, additional television, our set pieces to finish out the office. And so we've got some great things planned for you, including a trip to Liberia. I'll be leaving on February 11th, covering the 200, 200 bicentennial. And so again, when you support us, uh, we are able to continue to give you the kind of news coverage you're not going to find uh, anywhere else. And so please do so. Cash App, dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingatsmartin.com. Uh, rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. All the folks who give during the show will get personal shout outs all throughout the show. So if you give between now and uh, uh, 8 o'clock, the next hour and 17 minutes, you'll get a personal shout out from me, uh, no matter what, what you contribute. All right, folks, going to a break. We'll be back in a moment. This is Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I'd like to ask you a question. Is your life teetering under the weight and stress and pressures of everyday life? Well, let me tell you, balance isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for Living a Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, cheer ourselves on, and pull ourselves together, together. Learn tips and tools that will help you with the everyday stressors. So join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. 
I'm Bill Duke. This is Diala Riddle. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Pack. I'm Chrisette Michelle. I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. President Biden's nominee for the Federal Reserve Board is getting slammed with racist and sexist attacks. Dr. Lisa Cook is an experienced economist uh, who teaches economics and international relations at Michigan State University. She also held several positions at Harvard University. Cook was a senior advisor of finance and development at the U.S. Treasury Department. She served as a senior economist in the Obama administration. If confirmed by the United States Senate, she will be the first black woman ever on the Federal Reserve Board. Opponents of her uh, nomination claim she is underqualified, too radical, and lacks experience, and is selected due to her race. Dr. Marvel, sound quite familiar. You are uh, an economist. Uh, that resume is... Hey, Liz Hook rocks. I know her. She's really? She's, she ain't got credentials? Come on. <laughs> and um, if she's radical, I'm off the planet. This sister <laughs> literally about as moderate as they come. She's good. She knows what she's talking about. This is so effing disgusting, Roland. So disgusting. Her work, you can look up her papers. You know, there's never been a black woman on the Fed because black women economists have always been peripheralized. Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander, first black woman to get a PhD in economics, which she got from the University of Pennsylvania, was never able to teach economics at any of our mainstream universities, not even, frankly, at Howard University, because my brothers, I love them, but their patriarchy kind of has some issues. Um, there's something my mentor, Dr. Phyllis Ann Wallace, um, was the first black woman to serve as a researcher at the EEOC, and she had to jump through hoops to do that. Uh, she was the first black woman to get a PhD in economics from Yale University. We have a history of black women achievement in the economics profession, and Lisa is great. The sister rocks, she's so good. So these little stupid, and I, that means I was not using profanity on your show, Roland. I know y'all talk about me, but these stupid <laughs> idiots who are, are attacking her, are attacking her because of, as you said, white fear. This woman is gonna bring a different perspective to the Fed. 20 years ago, I wrote a piece saying, put a nurse on the Fed. What? The, the uh, Federal Reserve Act does not say the person has to be a PhD economist. It, does, it, it happened of Jerome Powell that have a degree in economics. So many of them don't have degrees in economics. But what they have is what the people think of as sense. She has more sense than all seven of them suckers combined. Combined. And she will do a, a stellar job. But, you know, when you start opening the door to black women... What you're doing is saying that others, too, can come through. Latinas, um, mm -hmm. American Indian folk. When you open it to us, you're saying that there, there's room for others. And these white men in their putrid patriarchy, putrid patriarchy, are afraid that a qualified black woman might call them on their nonsense. Again, forgive me, I'm emotional today, because when I saw that, uh, yesterday was somebody who wrote something in one of those little right-wing wags about her talking about affirmative action. Hell yeah, she's an affirmative action select if it means that all y'all white boys were for affirmative action selects. I got my PhD in economics from MIT, and yes, it was affirmative action, because they did not let... There were two of us in my class, and we're the first two 
to be admitted to MIT's econ department. Lisa's a, you know, about a decade younger, brilliant woman. Come on, y'all. I mean, white people are crazy. They're just MF crazy. And it makes me so angry to see qualified black women being sidelined because white boys don't have no sense. Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I love it how I'm a Congo. They love to attack um, black professionals because, oh, you didn't go to the right school. Then when you went to the right school, oh, you got into those schools because you were black. No, uh, I got it here because I can do it. And then when you excel, then as you go through all of that, see, this is why uh, Clarence Thomas is full of shit. This is why he is absolutely trash. See, the real... Because Clarence Thomas hates affirmative action, not realizing that it's a whole bunch of white folks walking around campuses who are only there because mama and daddy went there. Because mama and daddy cut a check. Let's just be clear. Um, Jared Kushner ain't smart. (laughs) His daddy (laughs) bought his way into Harvard. Donald Trump ain't smart. He's dumb. His own sister admitted he's dumb. His daddy bought him into Wharton. So can we please just stop playing these silly little games? You know, and, and here's my... And, and so there was a poll that was done, and I, I commented over the weekend, uh, and they dealt with the Supreme Court position. Uh, ABC News did a poll, and it was something like, you know, 76% of Americans don't want race to be a factor uh, in choosing Supreme Court nominee. And my response was, I really don't care. <laughs> I, I really don't care what y'all think. And I said, also, get the hell over it. I mean, I'm just, I, like, I, like, here's what I'm not going to do. I am not interested in making these type of white people comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm not even about to... We, we ain't even gonna engage in a resume conversation. Yep. We, yep. We're, we're not even going to go down that path because I've worked at CNN for six years. It was mm-hmm. a whole bunch of white boys there who had no business with some of those jobs. And black folks could not walk through the door at all. And so I'm just not interested in playing that game. And so uh, I'm not trying to convince them. I'm not trying to make them feel good. I'm not trying to present a litany of people who can vouch for them. I'm just going to be like, you know what? Y'all just kiss my ass. You know, I I hear you, man. And and the policy for us has to be to do not engage on, on so many levels. This country has had affirmative action since its inception for white people. It's called the complexion of connection. When you have people who can come over here from Europe and already be guaranteed a plot of land, you know, the list goes on and on and on. They've been doing it historically. And so when we come in with the qualifications that we have, like a Dr. Cook, and let's be clear, we know that there are incredible black women with, with doctorates and degrees in, in economics. 
But we know throughout history, black women have been taking care of the economics in our hood with no D behind their name because they're just that good at what they do in terms of taking care of the community and the family. And so when we have this woman, Dr. Cook, with this impeccable resume, when we have whoever is going to be the next Supreme, uh, Supreme Court justice nominee, we already know that the resumes are going to be impeccable because that's what black women do. They don't come half-hearted with this type of stuff when it comes to these types of positions and professions. So you're right, Roland, we have to just not engage Yo, look at the qualifications, call it a day. Every time I get into an argument, the only arguments only last about maybe two or three tweets on Twitter because I realize the intellect is lacking with some of these people. The first thing that they want to do is say, oh, how did you get your doctorate? Oh, you're a doctor, oh, this, so on and so forth. This is all they know how to do is be haters. And when they say radical, et cetera, black is synonymous with radical. That's all they see. I heard Ted Cruz talking on an interview saying, why do we need to have a black woman on the Supreme Court? Black women are only, what, 6% of the population? Seriously? We can make the fundamental argument that this country has been built on the body of the black woman in so many ways, shape, or form. And you don't want to recognize that? Over 150 Supreme Court justices and none of them have been a black woman? This is ridiculous, but, you're, but we just have to stand up, stand proud, back our sisters when they get in these positions, back our brothers when they get in these positions, and once they're in there, just watch them shine and do their thing and keep <coughs> propping them up. Because some of these guys who got issues with this black woman have no issues when President Reagan said he was going to nominate uh, Sandra Day O'Connor to have a woman on the Supreme Court. Some of these guys are like, oh, my daughters are going to have people, uh, uh, someone they can look up to. The same thing with our sisters. So whoever the justice nominee is going to be, Dr. Cook, do your thing. We got your back as well. You're the bomb. And again, we don't got time to engage. Let's spend more time building up than trying to build down with all of these other haters out there. You know, the thing that I found to be interesting, uh, Jeff, uh, is I'm looking up something right now um, that, you know, you listen to these people, uh, that, point, uh, that point you made um, about Ted Cruz, uh, when, when, they, when they love throwing up percentages. You know what? Mm -hmm. I, I was reading a Will Haygood's book over the weekend, um, Showdown, about Thurgood Marshall. And <laughs> uh, when Justice Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, was nominated, how it was, it was very contentious. Uh, it really wasn't until the 50s where they actually were forced to appear before Congress. And so... Um, but it was very contentious. So if, Ted, if that's Ted Cruz's argument, okay, explain to me why, uh, why Jewish Americans represent two, almost 2.5% of the American population, but there have been eight Jewish Supreme Court justices. See, that, that's, that's the stupidity of a, of a Ted Cruz, Jeff. It has nothing to do... So, oh, they're only this... Oh, so that's, that's, that's what now we're into. So there have been 108 out of 115 white males. So we're, we're now actually into that, huh? See, that's the game they want to play. And that's why you have to say, I don't really give a damn what y'all think. Oh, surely. I don't. Surely. Surely. I, I think, in general, we have to start acting with that mindset. Uh, we have to stop paying attention to how they feel about us. We live in this uh, white supremacist uh, oppressive structure, a systemic structure, of course. Uh, of course, we navigate through it. Of course, we conquer all. Of course, we still find our way to be successful no matter what they do. We still find a way to align ourselves with our purpose and still succeed in spite of all of this. But at the top of this pyramid, this white male ideal that 
really lies to America and tries to convince us that we exist in a meritocracy. Any one of us who's been in any professional situation, we knew pretty quickly after we got out of school and even going through school that we do not live in a meritocracy. We are working hard with degrees, we are working hard with experience, and we are working next to someone who we have to teach how to tie their own shoes, metaphorically speaking. So we've seen this myth be dispelled. When we hear people talk about Dr. Hook, uh, Dr. Cook, we hear this conversation and this attack on black women, we have to put that in perspective. Uh, when we talk about uh, the great Nas and one of his quotes, he says, poor or rich, don't nobody want to brother, sister, having fill in the blank. They don't want you to have anything. So there's always an additional hurdle. There's always an additional excuse. It's extremely ironic that here we are in the midst of celebrating seeing a freedom fighter like Harriet Tubman being put on the money, and yet we can't get a brilliant mind like Dr. Lisa Cook to secure the money and make sure that the money is good. The irony is, 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 is terrifying. What we're seeing and what we're hearing in the coded language is not you because you won't support the structure. We hear celebrations of blackness when we hear it. You don't have a problem. They didn't have a problem with Clarence Thomas and pointing out, oh, we have a, a black man on the Supreme Court. But we know that, as Chuck D said, every brother ain't a brother because of color, just as well could be undercover. So it's the <laughs> mentality that they're attacking when they're attacking this system. They're saying she's free, she's independent, she's smart enough to see through anything that we could put above her eye, her, or we'll try to pull over her eyes. So it's that independence, it's that fierce understanding of accomplishments, it's that she has been through pushing her way through a meritocracy that was not a meritocracy and still succeeded and still rose to the top and still remained an independent thinker. When we're talking about the Federal Reserve, we're talking about one question. Are you good with the money? Will you understand? Will you understand the issues? Will you be clear? She meets all of the qualifications. She checks all of the boxes. Hanks can come when we don't when we don't have institutions and we're not managing institutions of our own. We find ourselves trapped within that pyramid, trying to race so that we're not caught at the bottom, that we're close to the top. In this case, as you said, we have to say we don't care whether you think that she's qualified. We know she's qualified. She's ours. And we're going to do everything we can to support her and pay absolutely no attention to what you're saying. Julianne, go ahead. Final comment. Lisa Cook not only is eminently qualified, but she brings a different sensibility to the Fed. When we talk about monetary policy, interest rates, all that, we've talked about this on this program before, Roland. Here's the issue. Interest rates, hikes, or, or, or declines don't affect the population evenly. They affect it unevenly, and that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of looking at the diversity in our population and how public policy and monetary policy especially hits black people harder, hits poor people harder. That's the sensibility she's going to bring to the Fed, and that's what they don't want to hear. Uh, absolutely. All right, folks, let's now go to uh, Tennessee, where an officer involved in the shooting death of Landon Esteps 
stripped, has been stripped of his police powers. Nashville police chief said the 25-year-old veteran, Brian Murphy, fired the last two shots during the deadly encounter. We showed you this video just the other day, folks. Again, trigger warning to anyone. Uh, if you need to turn away, please turn away right now. I'm going to read a little bit more, and then we're going to play the video in about 15 seconds. Uh, Eastep was killed by police uh, on Thursday while walking on the highway. Nine officers thought he pulled a gun on them, and they opened fire. Watch this, folks. Please, Landon. Please. No, no, no. Landon, Landon. Cease fire! Cease fire! Please, Landon. Please. No, no, no. Joy Kimbrough is the attorney for Landon's wife, Chelsea. She joins us now from Nashville. Joy, glad to have you on the show. So the you had nine cops surrounding him. Nine cops. Well, actually, there were more than nine cops out there. There were far more than nine. There were nine that um, shot. So nine fired shots. Right, um, right. And but there were many, many, many officers out there. And so he reaches, he reaches in his pocket. Now, first of all, we, we heard different reports that when they pulled up, did he have box cutters? What was in his hand? Well, what, what's, what's interesting is we have not seen, um, we have not seen this alleged box cutter. No one's seen it. You know how normally if there is like a shooting and a gun is recovered, uh, they'll show you, they'll blow up the picture of the gun. We have not seen this box cutter yet. So what, so in the video, he reaches back, pulls something out. What was that? Was it a phone? Was it? No, there was, um, we, we're not sure what that is. And we've never been able to really get like a good picture, a good view of it but it was some like thin, silver, metallic-like um, object. It was very small. I don't know, maybe compared to a nail clipper or something. It's something of that sort. But they couldn't ascertain what it was, and then when he pulls it out, their instinct is to shoot to kill. Has anyone explained to you why no one had a taser? Listen, I have no idea why they jumped uh, from zero to 100. I have no clue. And my understanding is they had been out there over 30 minutes. So I don't, you know, here in Nashville, um, we, our Metro Council will give the police department anything they ask for any amount of money. So uh, recently, they just gave them over $3 million because they wanted new tasers. Um, they spent over $9 million on um, SUVs. They give them anything they want. So this is a well-equipped department. They have tasers, they have guns, they have dogs, they have pepper spray, they have rubber bullets, they have anything you can think of. They have it all. And I just, the, the thing that just is just beyond me uh, is, is this was clearly 
a man who had some issues. Uh, did he have a history of mental illness? Uh, anything along those lines um, as it relates to uh, his, uh, as it relates to, um, you, know, you know, his condition? Anything like that? Yes, he does. Uh, my understanding is he was bipolar and schizophrenic. Uh, so he definitely has a history of uh, mental health issues. But even if he had not, I still do not understand how this started as a man, a welfare check is my understanding. A man sitting on a guardrail on the side of the road, not bothering anybody, not obstructing traffic, not doing anything to anyone. I don't know how it went from that to one officer, to two officers, to three, to four, to five, to, I mean, it was no less than 20, 25, 30 out there. No, I, I do, because, because that's exactly what happens. And the problem is, when you have a welfare check, a wellness check, uh, and again, they were out there more than 30 minutes, it was abundantly clear something was wrong with this man. And so this is why people have been saying you bring in mental health professionals. You do not send out cops whose first instinct is to pull out weapons and they are trained to shoot to kill, not to wound, to shoot to kill. And, that, and so I'm still sitting here going, okay, if you were out there that long, and clearly, and we played the audio, and we can hear the officer say, look, man, we don't want to be begging, you know, don't want to do this here. I don't understand why you don't, that, that's not where you go, hmm, guns down, hit, pull a taser. And even after a certain period of time, and granted, you don't know what he's carrying, that's why you also have a taser. And what's more disturbing, that voice you hear negotiating with him, is our understanding that that was the off-duty officer who pulled up that's in another county. He had his family in a car. His wife wow. actually calls 911 to say, hey, if these officers start shooting, I'm, I'm going to be in the crossfire. So mm. this is an off-duty officer driving down the street. He gets out of his vehicle and... He's doing all the negotiating. Wow. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, but in Nashville, Tennessee, when it comes to our Metro Nashville police, they get an F when it comes to being prepared to deal with people or citizens with mental health issues. We get an F. We get an F. Uh, they're just not equipped. And this was not, within the, a year span, this was not the first person to be shot by a metro officer with clear mental health issues. They killed a homeless man. They killed a homeless man in the woods. His mother had called in and asked them to check on him. His name was Jason Griffin. They killed him. Um, there was a young lady who called the police. Her name is Melissa Wooden. She called Metro Police and asked them to come kill her. She no longer wanted to live or whatever. They go out there. She's holding a uh, uh, souvenir baseball bat in one hand and an axe in the other hand. Officers are out there. She has no gun, no, nothing that's deadly. They shoot her. She does not die, but they do. They tase her first and then they shoot her. And now she has a colostomy bag. So, I mean, they're just uh, ill-equipped. They're not prepared to deal with people with mental health issues. And it makes no sense because they get every dime they request. Every penny they they even think they want, they get. It's approved. Indeed. Uh, Joy, what's next for you and the family? 
Next, uh, his wife is going to have to have services. He still um, um, has not um, been buried. They still haven't had the service. So uh, that's what's next. You know, this is still, we're still in the initial stages. Uh, it's very hard on her. They were only married, they got married May 21st. They haven't even been married a year. He has a teenage son that he leaves behind. Um, so I guess just arrangements, those arrangements are what's next. But we do want officers held accountable here. We want yep. officers held accountable. They've already decommissioned one, and the one they decommissioned decommissioned is the one you hear them say stop, ceasefire, whatever. He's the one that even though uh, Mr. Estep is on the ground, clearly on the ground, no threat, he continues to shoot. Mm. That's him, Ryan Murphy. So um, he's been decommissioned. So I, I, I expect that there will be some type of criminal investigation as far as he's concerned, but there needs to be an investigation as to all officers out there that day. It was like a firing squad. They executed that man, that mentally ill man. They executed him. Um, and, and I just hope this isn't one that gets swept under the rug because it's, it's bound to happen again and again and again. Indeed. And, I'm, and let me just say this. And they're not really, you know, we just had, I heard you talk about it on one of your shows. We had another officer who was convicted um, for killing Daniel Hambrick. Now, the grand jury indicted him on first-degree murder. However, some deal was made, and um, the judge, Judge Monty Watkins, uh, allowed him to uh, be sentenced to three years, which he will only have to serve a year and a half of that. But um, we really aren't holding these, uh, these officers accountable here in Nashville. Um, it is certainly uh, a, a sad story. Joy, we appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on Roland. Thank you. Thank you, Roland. Uh, all right, folks. Um, a Georgia DA asked for FBI security after Donald Trump held a rally in Conroe, Texas. During his speech on Saturday, Trump railed against prosecutors investigating him, including Fulton County DA Fannie Willis. Her office uh, is looking into Trump's interference in the 2020 presidential elections there in Georgia. Uh, Trump urged his supporters to hold massive protests if anything illegal is discovered that he did. Listen to this idiot. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. New York Attorney General Letitia James and the Manhattan DA are also investigating Donald Trump's businesses. Willis wrote a letter to the FBI office in Atlanta asking for a risk assessment of buildings surrounding her office and the courthouse, uh, the building where a grand jury will be seated to investigate election interference. This, Jeff, right here uh, shows you how evil, how sick and demented this idiot is. He ha has no regard. Uh, for life, has no regard for anyone else, uh, and frankly cannot be trusted at all. Uh, I hope these folks hurry the hell up and indict this thug. Uh, it's also 
noteworthy to point out that in with all of those component parts, he's still quite popular. And he's very popular with his people, and he's popular with people who believe in him. Uh, I talked about one of the first, uh, this was a couple of months back when I came on here, I talked about the difference between belief and fact. And if you can convince somebody to believe in something, in some noun, in some person, place, thing, or idea, they don't care what the facts are. So Trump is speaking loudly to his true believers. Uh, they're not interested in the rule of law. Uh, they're not interested in fairness, justice, and equality. They're not interested in equity. They're only interested in Trump. And they're interested in what he is promising to give to them, even though he never, ever delivers. He is speaking and using coded language. That is working for him. It works for him. If you'll note, every time you listen to him speak, I'm going to give you a little tip to listen to for. Listen to how he describes the country and listen to what he stresses. Our country, our elections, he's talking about white men, our America, make our country great again. It's direct coded language. It used to be coded language. Now it's just shop talk with the homeboys. So now he's saying, I am going to do whatever I want to do in this space as long as I have you behind me. People will give money. They will show up at the rallies. They will turn their hate into activism. So we have to be mindful that while, yes, he is shameless, while, yes, he is corrupt, while, yes, he is unqualified, he knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows how to push their buttons. He knows how to rally them. He knows how to charm them and to mobilize them. And that is why Donald Trump is still dangerous. This is why we have to make sure that we don't sit back on our laurels and just allow this to go unchecked. Um, Julian. You know, the orange orangutan is, uh, I don't curse on your program, so I won't call his name. The orange orangutan is at his a highlight of stupidity, cupidity, ignorance, and arrogance. But the fact is that these prosecutors who are well within their rights in their jobs that they were elected to are being treated to horrible, uh, just horrible treatment. And let's be clear in terms of what Jeff said, he's not going after white men. He's going after women. He's going after black women. He said horrible things about Letitia James. He said horrible things about this sister here in Georgia. What he's basically doing is going after those who are perceived as other. So he's attempting to set up a tableau where it's white men and everybody else. And there are white men who are, you know, I can't even say that on the air. Even I can't say what I think of them on the air. Uh, limp, you know what, you know what's. Um, but that they are so threatened by the notion that they're going to be scrutinized, that they're willing even to put their own mothers, daughters, sisters, and wives under the bus when these women are raising questions about what he is doing. He needs to not only be locked up, they need to put a, a straight jacket on him and tase his behind for 45 minutes or so before they put him up under the jail because he's basically imperiling the life liberty of just about everybody. It is disgusting. When you hear him, it's disgusting. Put a muzzle on his mouth or a sanitary napkin. For that matter, that will really freak him out. Oh, Congo, uh, these folks, they still listen to him, his rant. 
and his ravings. And again, we saw what happened on January 6th. Uh, he yep. can move these folks to violence. Uh, D.A. Willis is absolutely smart to do this. Oh, absolutely. And he called at that rally for large, the largest protest that America has ever seen as it relates to any actions that the, these women's offices may take. So we could be talking about something greater than January 6th. I think we also, you know, Brother Jeff was talking about paying attention to the words that, that he uses. Let's also remember, let's listen closely as well. When he goes after people like Liz Cheney and Kissinger and all of these other types of guys, he may call these guys are not patriots or traitors and so on and so forth, but he never uses the word racist, never uses mm -hmm. that word until talking about these two black women. So of everything that he said in that rally, the most dangerous word that he can throw out to that audience is that word racist. These women not only need protection in their offices and for their staff, they need round-the-clock protection. We've seen what has happened across these countries in these school boards and this fake, you know, critical race theory argument and what these people will do over mask policies and all of this other type of stuff. Imagine what these folks will do to hear that two black women are coming after their lead. This is no <laughs> joke. And these mm -hmm. two sisters need to invest in private security in addition to all of the FBI stuff. We have to start going the distance to make sure that our community is protected because we've seen what they're willing to do to each other as it relates to these insurrectionists and January 6th and so on and so forth. They could give two cares about yep. us. This is real and it needs to be taken serious in every way, shape and form. All right, folks, hold tight one second. When we come back, we'll talk about today's developments in a federal courtroom in Georgia where the Amar Arbery family vehemently opposed a Department of Justice plea deal between uh, two of the white men uh, convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. We'll break down exactly what this plea deal was, uh, how federal courts works when it comes to these deals. We'll also be, a toy, be joined by one of the Arbery family attorneys, Lee Merritt. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered right here on the Black Star Network. up a chair, take your seat, the Black Table, with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Godfrey, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. And while he's doing Unfiltered, I'm practicing the wobble. 
All right, folks, uh, today in Georgia, a pretrial hearing took place for two of the white men who were convicted in state court of killing Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, this, of course, now the federal trial is supposed to start on Monday. That is, they're being tried for civil rights violations uh, against Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, and so, as you already know, they were convicted, again, in state court. But this is now the federal court. Well, the issue today dealt with a Department of Justice uh, plea deal that was uh, worked out uh, between uh, them as well as the two defendants. Now, uh, this is the plea deal right here. In this particular plea deal, they would be sent, they would get 30 years in federal prison. But in addition to them uh, getting 30 years in federal prison, as part of the plea deal, uh, they also would confess to the actual crime that they chased Amon Arbery down because of his race. Now, in this plea deal, they also would waive any federal appeal as well. This would ensure they will be incarcerated regardless of the outcome of any of their state appeals. Now, uh, this set off uh, the family of Amar Arbery, they were not happy with this deal because based upon this deal, uh, they would serve 30, the first 30 years in a federal prison and after 30 years, if they are still alive, they would then be transferred to a state prison. Again, this was for Travis McMichael and his father, Gregory. Uh, what, so what the judge then, the judge, the judge did not agree to the plea deal. Now, she did not, she agreed, with, she agreed with the, I listened in on the call today, folks. She agreed with the 30-year sentence. She did not agree, agree on the second part of the plea deal when it came to them serving the first 30 years in federal prison. <clears throat> As a result, she gave uh, them an opportunity to withdraw their plea deal. Their attorneys asked for 48 hours to confer with their clients. She then said, well, you could come back tomorrow or you can come back Friday. They said, let's do Friday. She said, let me be clear, the trial begins on Monday. In the back and forth, the judge made clear she could sentence them to more than 30 years. She can sentence them to 30 years or sentence them to less than 30 years. Uh, and so that, that was the issue, Jared, there. Joining us right now uh, is uh, Lee Merritt, one of the attorneys for the Mar Arbery family. Uh, Lee, uh, you sent out uh, a series of texts uh, condemning this plea deal. Um, why is that? Why, uh, why uh, that response? Because this was what the, this was the statement that was sent out after the judge's decision uh, from the Assistant Attorney General Christian Clark, who leads the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Quote, we respect the court's decision to not accept the sentencing terms of the proposed plea and continue the hearing until Friday. The Justice Department takes seriously its obligation to confer with the Aubrey family and their lawyers, both pursuant to the Crime Victim Rights Act and out of respect for the victim. Before signing the proposed agreement reflecting the defendant's confessions to federal hate crime charges, the Civil Rights Division consulted with the victim's attorneys. The Justice Department entered the plea agreement only after the victim's attorneys informed me that the family was not opposed to it. Your response to that? Uh, Kristen Clark, who is a, is a, has been a dear ally and friend in the Civil Rights Department and even before she was there, did consult with us as attorneys, both I and Ben Crump. Uh, she did not talk to us about the condition 
of transfer from state custody into federal custody. And that's what the family was uh, against. So what, so what is the issue there? Because if they go to federal prison for 30 years, they're in prison. They're not getting out. And if they serve their time in a federal prison, then they're going to state prison. So what, so what is the issue here? Them serving it in a Georgia state prison, prison versus a federal prison? Well, as Kristen Clark will tell you, the uh, Department of Justice is currently suing the state of Georgia because of the condition of their prisons. They're overcrowded. They have less funding. And comparatively, the federal prison would represent a lighter sentence, certainly so to the family. The family is convinced of that. And so they are not interested in any plea deal that makes that sentence primary. When you say a lighter sentence, what does that mean? How is it lighter if the time, they're not getting less time in federal prison? No. So what I said was, if you consider the condition of the state prisons in Georgia, uh, the the fact that they're overcrowded, the fact that they're underfunded, the fact that they, that safety would be an issue for these men, this is something that the family wanted to consider. When and and obviously these men think that this sentence will be lighter because they're fighting desperately to be get transferred to federal prison. Okay, I'm 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 still trying to understand this. Okay, so is the family saying because Georgia prisons? are overcrowded, underfunded, uh, and they're in horrible shape, they want to see them there. That's correct. Okay, so that's why when you keep saying lighter sentence, that's really what you're talking about there. Um, and so, uh, now, here's the other piece here. They're appealing on the state grounds. Was well, a part of the federal plea deal, they are admitting to the crime. Can't... Doesn't that pretty much negate any potential appeal because they are admitting to it that, that, that he was, he was uh, pursued due to race. Uh, and so you pretty much slam dunk. You can try to appeal all you want to. You ain't getting out because you're going to have this federal uh, sheet of paper where, where they have stated that they pursued him and killed him based upon his race. Absolutely. The terms of the uh, confession that where they admit to certain aspects of the crime. Now, mind you, uh, uh, mens rea or the, the belief that, uh, that they chased after the, uh, Ahmad because of his race is not a factor in the crimes that they were convicted of at the state level. However, any confession is going to make uh, an appeal more difficult. So, yeah, that would be one benefit to the, uh, to the plea. Uh, also, uh, this, this DOJ plea bargain... Uh, it also uh, would mean they, they can't appeal on the federal level. Right. They've waived their right to appeal as a part of the plea agreement. They could not uh, appeal the plea agreement they, that they would have entered today. So what would the family be satisfied with? That is, they a plea on the federal level, but they serve it in the state prison instead of federal? The family is actually content with their sentence as it stands life without the possibility of parole and, and Georgia state prisons. This is a cherry on top. So anything that would come along and modify that the conditions that they've already accomplished in the state sentence, uh, they would oppose. But, but, but here's the deal, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, when it comes to, uh, 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 comes to uh, state, you have life without parole, but that's obviously on the state charge. You still have the federal charge. But one of the defendants does have the possibility of parole, correct? And he was not a part of this plea. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's uh, William Roddy Bryan. That's correct. Okay. Uh, and so, if that's the case, 
Is the family then asking the feds to withdraw the, the, the case? Because, again, the judges said the trial is going to start on Monday. So if they come back and say, hey, because, you know, judge, you didn't accept it, we're, we're, you know, uh, we're not going to accept this. Let's say this thing moves to trial, okay? It goes to trial. Let's say they are convicted. The reality is I've talked to different lawyers who say uh, in a lot of times, when you, when you have somebody convicted in state and federal, a lot of times the federal uh, supersedes the state and they serve time there first. So, so e even if the trial moves forward, there's no guarantee that if they're convicted, they don't serve in, uh, initially in federal prison. So this is certainly a condition that we spoke with Kristen Clark about. And she assured the family because of the primacy of the state case and the fact that the, the charge for murder was more serious in terms of weight uh, the, at the state level than the federal level. Without a plea deal, they stay in state prison. Okay, no, no, no. Without a plea deal, they stay in state prison if they're not convicted. No, even if they're convicted. Based upon what? Based on the representations of Kristen Clark. No, based upon... Uh, based but, but is there is there a statute that says... Is there a statute... And I've been asking people for it. Is there a statute that says the state takes precedent over federal? Uh, it, there are factors that are considered. It's not a statute. There are two factors that will play here. First, who received the sentence first? So the fact that the state received the sentence first, and again, this is as was explained to us by Kristen Clark, the head of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ. Uh, so the fact that, that they received the sentence in the state first uh, uh, makes it more likely that they will first serve out the, uh, the state sentence. And then in addition, the seriousness of the charge. Here, kidnapping versus murder. Murder is the more serious charge. It's the sentence that they would play out first. I want to bring in Glenn Ivey, former federal prosecutor, uh, in here. Uh, and Glenn, I, I want to ask you that because, again, I, I, I see y'all sitting here, people saying, oh, this is confusing. And, and I need people who are watching. Some of y'all like, okay, Roland, move on. No, I'm not going to move on because too many people out here are utterly confused about what's going on because a bunch of y'all are not lawyers and you don't understand what's happening in the criminal justice system. And so I've been watching people all day, all pissed off about, about, about the plea deal. Some saying, well, I don't understand why the family is, is acting this way because you don't understand what's going on here. And so that's why we're having the conversation. Now, Glenn, ex explain to us, how does this thing work? You got a state conviction, but now you got a federal trial that's supposed to start on Monday well, what, does anybody supersede someone? I mean, how, who works that out? Yeah, I mean, typically the way that would work is you would do a, a plea agreement that encompassed the state and the federal case at the same time. So there'd be a coordinated effort. Um, and then, you know, typically the federal sentence would go first uh, or, or be the entire sentence, because typically the federal sentences are more, are, are stiffer than state sentences. Now, because they have been convicted, these two, life without parole, that's life without parole. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess the feds, you know, that they, they don't have a sentence that's going to supersede that from the standpoint of uh, a, a term of incarceration. Um, so you would think... Uh, as as counsel as counsel just explained, and that he was re he got representations from the Department of Justice that um, the state sentence could supersede that, um, and that would be the uh, the one that would be served first. But it, it it is a little unusual for it to happen that way. I must say.
So you're saying in most cases, like in many cases, federal is served first. Yeah, not only that, in most cases, the federal case would be the one that would would um, would drive yeah, the, the whole penalty. Deal. And what happened? So, and what happened here, Lee? That was back and forth between the state and the federal. And f the federal folks said to state, "You go first. You prosecute them first. That's right. And there was a plea deal offered before the state entered their sentence. You could, you, you may recall. And in that case, the oh, federal. Hold on, hold, hold, hold one second. When you said there was a plea deal offered. By whom? State or federal? By the federal government. Got it. Go ahead. Yeah. So the DOJ considered a plea deal prior to the state sentencing. In that case, they, the men would have served their time in federal prison first. Because of that, the family decided to take their chances with the state sentencing to see if they would get a more severe penalty. Okay. So you're saying that prior to the state, him them, them being convicted on the state level, the, fed, the federal, uh, the, fed, the DOJ approached uh, them about a plea deal on the federal charges. That's correct. Well, so, for, so, for both charges, as as counsel just mentioned, they would they would have done the two of them together. Got it. Oh, okay. Hold up. So again, see that 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 sort of changes it. They were approached about a plea deal on the state and federal charges, and the family <laughs> said, "Let's wait to see what happens on the state with the state case." That's exactly it. Okay. Um, the judge rules... Glenn, the point I asked, I asked Lee this, okay, let's say the McDaniels don't accept... They, they said they pull their guilty plea. Judge says trial starts on Monday. Let's say they are convicted in federal court. Then what? Uh, yeah, it's a pretty unusual scenario. Um, you know, I hear counsel, you know, saying that the Department of Justice represented that um, uh, that uh, the 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 state would go first from the standpoint of incarceration. Usually, it's the other way around. Usually, the federal sentence is what drives um, all of this process at the state and federal level. Usually, it's coordinated, uh, so it is a little odd. But um, you know, the fact that it's it would be a longer sentence, um, you know, because it's a a life without parole sentence. You know, maybe that's a factor. I, I guess the other question would be which judge decides as well, um, you know, which one would go first. And, uh, you know, and, and typically issues like where they serve their sentence, at least at the federal level, the judges don't even decide that. That would be the Bureau of Prisons who would make that decision. Bureau of Prisons. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, and again, uh, it's interesting, you know, folks like, oh, my goodness, you're complicating this. Y'all, it actually is complicated. Because the fact of the matter is, you actually rarely see this. That's true. I mean, you rarely see this. Take the cop, take the cop uh, who killed Walter Scott. Hung jury on the state level for murder charges. What did he do? He took a plea deal on the federal level uh, as opposed to going to a third trial on the state level. And that's why he's sitting in federal prison. Uh, and so people need to understand that this is, this, this is unusual in terms of how this happens because what have we historically seen? Historically, we've actually seen people found not guilty on the state level, and then we've had to depend upon the federal government to convict them in a hate crime trial. Rodney King. Yeah, Rodney King case is a perfect example. And, and again, those two cases involving police officers, this obviously uh, is different uh, in term, term, terms of uh, what happened. Well, Lee, uh, we certainly will see 
or when we go to court uh, uh, on Friday, what, what they're actually going to do. The judges made clear that, look, if you don't accept this plea deal, the trial starts uh, on Monday. Uh, to my panelists, either one, either you have a question for Glenn Ivey or Lee Merritt, uh, Julian Omakongo or Jeff? Uh, Glenn, uh, Julian, go. Um, well, what I'm curious about in terms of this, uh, I love what the family is saying is make him go to the worst prison that he could, them, to the worst prison they can go to. Uh, is there any um, mitigation? I mean, can judges or others say we want to give them a break? Yeah, I, I'm just concerned about how this plays out. Well, if you mean at the federal level, typically no, because they're violent offenders. So, you know, at, at the federal level, you have, you know, they call them club feds. They're still jails, but um, they're certainly not what you'd see at the state level from the standpoint of accommodations and the like. But you also have the supermax case, you know, jails there, too, where, you know, the Unabomber is held and the Al-Qaeda suspects are held and, um, you know, that crowd, too. And that's 23 hours of solitary confinement day after day. In fact, human, right, human rights violations have been raised about that particular prison in Colorado. So, uh, I, you know, the family has a right to, to push for what it wants, and they're probably right that the state, if, if I'm hearing counsel right, sounds like the situation in, in Georgia jails is, is especially bad. Um, but there's some tough jails in the federal uh, co uh, complex of jails as well. So. Well, I, I got I, I got this text, Lee, and I would like someone someone hit me, and they said, "So are we now advocating for inhumane conditions in prisons?" No, the inhumane conditions exist, and we have lawsuits filed against Georgia state prisons concerning their conditions. However, when why should these men be the exception when so many black and brown people are actually held in those deplorable conditions in the state of Georgia? Or why do these men get the less severe conditions while everyone else gets? Uh, the worst of the worst. So I'll ask again: If the family then does not want this to be a possibility, are they are they going to are you going to ask the federal government to drop the char the federal charges against them? Because if you drop you the, if you drop the federal charges, there's no conversation. They're going to prison. They're in life without parole. There is no discussion about potentially going to federal prison. Because as I said, you can move forward with this, and then they can be convicted in federal court. And the, and the judges may decide they're going to go to federal prison first. And so all this was for naught. So will you do that? Yeah. Roland, it's funny that you say that, because in our conversations with the Department of Justice yesterday, Wanda Cooper-Jones made it clear that her preference was if there was a chance that these men would be transferred to federal prison as a result of their conviction, then take these charges and, um, well, I won't use the language she used, uh, drop them. But that's up to the that's up to the federal uh, officials to decide whether they actually drop a case. That's correct, um, Jeff. Yeah, there are uh, several issues here. I want to say thanks, to Attorney Merritt and Attorney Ivy, for really getting into the weeds with this issue. And like Brother Roland said, there are people out here who do not understand the complexities and the layers when it comes particularly to sentencing. When you talk about the state system versus the federal system, uh, some of those differences come into play, including the quality of management, uh, the, the size of the prison system itself, the federal prison, I think uh, they're about, 100 and, uh, 100, oh, about 122, 123 federal prisons, whereas there are over 1,700 state prisons, and they tend to be poorly run. 
Is this issue about, and this plea agreement that was rejected by Judge uh, Wood, is this more about preferred imprisonment for these guys? They want to take their chances at the federal level as opposed to the horrendous conditions in Georgia? Yeah, it certainly comes down to the conditions of confinement. And in Wanda's statement to the court, she repeatedly referenced the conditions of confinement <clears throat> is what she was hoping uh, to maintain, that she wanted them, these men to serve their time where her son was murdered, where she raised her son, where she paid her taxes in the Georgia state prisons. And if there's a problem with the Georgia state prisons from a humanitarian standpoint, fix the prisons. Glenn, any comment? Well, you know, I think it's it's certainly a challenge of, you know, what's going on in prisons across the country. And this is true at federal prisons, too. COVID is a challenge at the federal level. They have a lot of jails or uh, prisons. Uh, Washington, D.C. actually faced some challenges with, with their, their jail as well. And I filed a uh, request to get uh, prisoners out of jail early because of these conditions at the federal level. So it's a challenge that I think we need to keep our eye on. I understand the the family has a unique concern here, but but the challenge of the condition of our prisons, we've got to keep our eye on that ball because they're inhumane. People don't get a chance to get the types of training and, and, and education that they could uh, benefit from. So when they come out from a reentry standpoint, they've maximized the chance to, to really be productive citizens again. But in the case of these two, they're not coming out. And if they do go to federal prison first, um, when they finish federal and they're still alive, they're going to state prison. Uh, if if they go to federal prison first. Oma Congo, final question. First of all, thank you both for your tireless work on behalf of the community. The question that I have is that if they were willing to sign something admitting that they targeted Arbery because he was black, is there some possibility where some types of hate crime charges can also be added to whatever they're dealing with, just so this another message could be sent as it relates to that area as well? Well, actually, th so th that's what this plea bargain would be. So they would okay. be the, the plea bargain. They would they would be plea bargaining to pleading guilty to federal hate crime charges. Right now they are they've already been indicted and charged with uh, violating uh, his civil rights, federal hate crimes. So they're they're the multitude of this. So they would be pleading guilty to those charges. And so today, uh, the, what the judge, what, excuse me, what the uh, th what the assistant U.S. attorney said. Uh, in, case, in the courtroom, she said it was important for the purpose of the public to get this, to get this guilty plea, to get, find them uh, uh, convicted on these hate crime charges. Uh, Lee, your thoughts? Yeah, the, the hate crime charges uh, um, are not available at the state level, and, and obviously they're pressing them forward in the federal case. However, for the family, they're mostly concerned about these men serving out their state sentence. All right, then. Uh, any response to that, Glenn? No, I, I, I take that point. Um, you know, it, it would be uh, a powerful, I think, admission by both of these men th that what they did was based on racial animus. And I think that would be an important message for the nation to hear, really the world. But I, I, I understand that, you know, the family has a different um, priority on this. All right, then. Lee Merrick, Glenn Ivey, gentlemen, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. So, so, so one of the reasons why it was important to have that conversation and give that time to it, because, frankly, a lot of people out here, y'all know what the hell's going on. Okay? Here's the deal for everybody out here who's whining. I see y'all in the chat room whining and running your mouths. Today's hearing, you couldn't record it.
We couldn't air it. So unlike the state trial where you got to actually see for yourselves what was being discussed, federal cases aren't allowed. They don't allow that. They did allow a phone line to be available for those, those of us to listen in to hear the proceedings uh, and then be able to report it. And so it's way too many people. I, I, I saw stuff all, all day today. I saw people, oh, oh, the DOJ is trash. Uh, uh, Kristen Clark, what kind of black woman are you? Okay, this is the same black woman who was, a, was a, leading the Lawrence Committee for Civil Rights uh, 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 under law who's out there fighting civil rights cases. So, folks, the reason we have shows like this, so you can understand the law. So you can understand what's happening here. This is a very unique case that we're, that we're dealing with here that rarely ever happens. And so it's too many, and, and let me say, I mean, let's be real clear, it's way too many black folks out here who are emotional on this whole deal, who are trashing other black folks who want to see them convicted. And so we have actually something that we rarely ever get, justice on the state level and the federal level because they've been convicted on the state level and the plea bargain was to plead guilty on the federal level. And so versus sitting here yelling and complaining and why are we having a conversation is to allow our black legal minds to explain to you what is going on so you understand what is going on and you're not running out here in a fog trying to figure it all out. And so again, the judge gave them till Friday for the McMichaels. Only one of them was in the courtroom today, folks. So that their lawyer said, can we confer with our clients? So Friday, when they come back to court, they will decide, will let the court know whether they have actually accepted the guilty plea. If they withdraw their guilty plea on Friday, the federal hate crimes trial for the McMichaels will begin on Monday in Georgia. And we'll tell you exactly what happens on Friday in this case. Folks, when we come back, a former Miss, Miss, uh, former beauty pageant queen commits suicide a couple of weeks after the 26-year-old son of Regina King does the exact same thing. We'll talk with an expert next about what is happening with African-Americans in suicide and We'll also later talk with a doctor about your oral health. We talk about mind, body, fitness. We talk about working out your diet. Mm. But a lot of us have uh, some serious problems in our mouths that could actually hurt us later in life. Folks, you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
this is Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I'd like to ask you a question. Is your life teetering under the weight and stress and pressures of everyday life? Well, let me tell you, balance isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for Living a Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, cheer ourselves on, and pull ourselves together, together. Learn tips and tools that will help you with the everyday stressors. So join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for A Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie. We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hey, I'm Cupid, the maker of the Cupid Shuffle and the Wham Dance. What's going on? This is Tobias Trevelyan. And if you're ready, if you are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered. Folks, suicide is a significant issue in the United States, not just for black men, but also for black women. Yesterday, the news of uh, Chelsea Ward uh, killing herself, jumping off a building in New York, shocked so many people. Uh, across the country. Of course, she was Miss USA in 2019, was a TV correspondent uh, for Extra, and also uh, was a, um, uh, first of all, was also a local mayor in the D.C. suburb. Uh, first of all, no, she, she was a, Chelsea was also a lawyer in New York. We also have the story uh, of uh, a mayor in Hyattsville, Maryland, who a week ago took his life, as well as uh, the 26-year-old son of uh, actress and director Regina King. His name is Eon Alexander. That was two days after his 26th birthday. And so uh, to have uh, these three cases in the last couple of weeks has been a shock to a lot of different people. Uh, in addition, I was watching a story uh, where the voice of Charlie Brown, 65-year-old gentleman, uh, also took his life. The CDC conducted a study and found that black respondents had the highest percentage of suicidal ideation at 15% compared to whites and others. Also, 44% of blacks reported having more than one negative mental health symptom, while whites and others had 38% and 40%. There's a common misconception. Oh, black folks, we don't kill ourselves. But what we have seen over the past decade, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of African-Americans committing suicide. Troy Byer is a mental health expert. Uh, she joins us from Flagstaff, Arizona, to offer her insight. Uh, many of you also know uh, Troy from being uh, an actor and director as well. Uh, but she has uh, other pursuits beyond uh, Hollywood. Troy, these, um, you know, so many people, I've seen the comments, or people saying, I mean, here you have this beautiful, talented, vivacious, 30-year-old black woman, television correspondent. She's an attorney living in a high-rise in New York. Why in the world would she take her own life? You got this, you see this, all the different salutes of, of Regina King's son, Eon. I mean, he was a chef and he was a DJ and doing great things in just two days after his 26th birthday. But folks don't really understand the reality of depression that people go through uh, in this world. Yeah, 
So um, what qualifies me to have this conversation with you is that I do have a doctorate in clinical psychology, and I am very well uh, educated on this particular topic. And you said it right there, Roland, depression, right? So when a human being is depressed, they push backwards. They don't want to push forward. And when you are pushing backwards continuously, then you don't even want there to be any momentum. You want to stop the action because the pain of moving forward is just too painful. And I think that's really what, you know, what's happening here is that people are just depressed. They're, they're, we don't have futures that we're excited about living into. Even though face value, it looks like this person has a great life or this person has a great life. What you see is not always the truth. We know that Instagram teaches that every day. It lets us know that just because they're looking happy doesn't know what, the, what you know, doesn't speak to their authentic happiness. People are depressed. They're sad. They're scared. We're living in the most challenging times in the history of the world, as far as I'm concerned. And what's inspiring us to want to move forward? Well, that's the question. And also the issue, and, and she, and I saw, I've seen different posts where Chelsea talked about anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, yes. and, and, and there are people who, again, they have significant bouts with that. It leads to, uh, it leads to panic attacks. Um, That's right. uh, and things along those lines. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've talked to, um, uh, I've talked to teachers and professors the level of anxiety a lot of young folks have uh, to succeed, the constant comparisons to siblings and other friends. You mentioned uh, social media. Um, uh, you know, I remember I was talking to, I was at a movie junkie one day, and this, I was talking to this guy, and he was saying how he, this was a grown man with children, uh, a wife and children, and he said how he had to get off of Instagram because he took nice vacations, but he was just so despondent looking at, celebrities and others and what he was seeing on Instagram that, uh, that, that he was being depressed by it. And I was going, I said, wait a minute, are you serious? Yeah. You know, and so, and so, so you have this, where we're now living in this world where you're being constantly compared to others as well. And a lot of people talk about that level of anxiety, how they can't handle it. Right. Listen, the hustle is real. It is real. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses in a way like never before. Anxiety is the inability to control an outcome. Okay, it's all future based, right? So that's why when we have anxiety, we can, and when we're having a panic attack or dealing with depression, we need to know how to take care of ourselves. And that's my job. That's why I went and got a doctorate in clinical psychology because I'm dedicating my life to teaching human beings how to self-regulate in the space of despair and anxiety and panic. We have a first aid kit when we have for physical challenges. Do you know we do not have a first aid kit for mental challenges? So a first aid kit takes care of your physical challenge until you can get to a professional. As far as I'm concerned, the mental first aid kit that I'm creating will allow a person to self-regulate until they can get to a professional to help them. People commit suicide because they feel like it's the only option. The pain is so great. I also want to add in that when we're experiencing emotional or psychological pain, the same exact region of the brain is activated that is activated when we're experiencing physical pain. So it's very real, but we have not been trained. We have not been equipped with the tools and information to take care of ourselves. And that's what my life work is all about because I am done hearing about people taking their lives because the pain was unbearable. The pain is real, but it can be bearable if you have the right tools, the right information, and if you have the desire to live. And I can't imagine 
I can't imagine that that beautiful spirit, any of the people that I know that have died recently, did not have the desire to live. It was just too painful. Um, to, your to that particular point, I'm going to go to my panel for questions in just a second. Uh, when we talk about what people are dealing with, um, actor Michael Madsen, um, his son also recently took his life, wife, children. Uh, he served in the military. Dad said had no idea. There were no indications whatsoever. Um, and again, the outward appearance is one thing. You take uh, you take um, you take uh, Chesley. Not only was she a lawyer, a TV correspondent, had an MBA as well. I think people confuse. Oh my God! Here's somebody. I mean, how do you have these these amazing uh, you know credentials and you've done all of these different things and you're 30 years old uh, and then you would you would actually do this? Uh, this was. Uh, the last post that she made on Instagram, uh, and this apparently this was posted uh, after 6 a.m. on Sunday, and it was authorities say it was around 8:15 when she apparently she jumped from the high rise in New York. Uh, she said, "May this day bring you rest and peace, with uh, a red heart." Um, when you talk about what, what somebody who's being tormented, what they're going through they're searching for those two things, rest and Yeah. Listen, Roland, just, you know, everything that glitters is in gold. I mean, I've attempted suicide twice. I know, I know the plight, I know the journey. And one of the reasons I left show business and went into uh, psychology is because I was tired of the rejection and tired of the hustle. And I was really suicidal. I was like, I've got, I've got to stop this. No one would have ever thought that about me. They're like, oh, she's got it together. She dated Prince. She was on Dynasty. You don't know what happens when someone goes home and they shut that door. That's when the real deal comes out. And like I said, if you don't have anything in your future that's really inspiring you and lighting you up, you're going to depress backwards. So, yeah, she was definitely glistening and she was golden, but her soul was broken and she didn't have the tools to fix herself. And that's what my life work is about, again, is teaching you how to do you. Jeff. Because you can. Sure, sure. First of all, I want to say thank you, Dr. Troy, for not only your career, but all of the intersecting spaces that makes you uniquely qualified to put what you're putting into the world. Thank you for walking in your purpose. Thank you for healing others. And, and I know it's a thankless job. Uh, when I'm in the ministry here in this space, I, I counsel people and I'm a very practical minister. I understand that you can't pray these things away. You can't put oil on somebody's head and expect for it to go away or point them to a verse in a scripture. Uh, it's all about getting them the tools, getting people the That's tools right. that they need to work. And this affects all of us. We get on Instagram yes. and social media, and to use a music right. metaphor, we compare our daily, sig uh, our daily singles to somebody else's greatest hits. And yes, it can move well. us in a place where we reflect, and we reflect on the past, it creates the regret. We start thinking about the future, and it creates the anxiety. And we talk about the neurological process. I want to give you a moment and just tell us about the, the brain process as it relates to trauma. Because if I'm correct, people look and they say, oh, it wasn't that bad. A person just, you know, they fell down some steps. I got in a car wreck. But as we are especially developing trauma, if I'm, if I'm correct, trauma registers the same for different it people. It sure does. Okay, so it's talk actually, about that a little bit. 
Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for introducing that into the conversation uh, a little deeper because it's so relevant. Trauma is hugely impactful, especially emotional trauma, because it has an impact in a way that we can't really see. So we don't know that we listen. If you break your arm, that's a physical trauma. We know we've got to put it back in place. But when you're dealing with emotional trauma, we don't know to what extent the trauma is impacting you. So what happens is when we're <coughs> dealing with any kind of threat, especially emotionally, our brain, the part of our brain that is responsible for logic and reason, which is the frontal cortex, I call it the CEO of the brain, it shuts down. It's no longer available to make wise, smart choices. We're activated then by the reptilian part of our brain, which is only concerned with fight or flight. And when the fight looks too big, that's when the flight sets in and that's when suicide kicks in. And that is not done within a consciousness of a logic and reason. It happens in the space of primitive survival. That's the part of the brain that's instructing you to kill yourself. So that's why I teach people within seconds how to disengage from that reptilian brain like that, reactivate that frontal cortex and make some very reasonable choices until they can get the proper help. It's all science. It's all doable. We just need access to the information. So all right. thank and you uh, before I go to uh, Omakongo, um, <coughs> this just in here from TMZ, Walking Dead actor Moses J. Mosley, um, dead at 31. Cops, cops suspect suicide. Yeah, there we go. Omakongo. Wow. Wow. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Byer, for all of the work that, that you're doing. As somebody, uh, myself, I was, I was suicidal as a teen. And the question I have for you is now, as a parent, raising kids, three kids between the ages of 7 and 15, what are some of the, the modern-day signs that... And I work with youth across the country, so I see things, but from an expert who, who does this like you do at the level you do, what are some of the signs that we as parents, educators, anybody who has young people in our life or in our char charge should be looking for as it relates to signs of possible suicide ideation and attempts? First thing is isolation. Whenever you see a child or an individual removing themselves from community, community is congregation, it's common union, right? You have people that you unite with. So when you start to see an individual withdrawing and going into solitude and isolation and removing him or herself, so if you look at uh, some of the posts of people who've committed suicide, there's a two-week space of no communication when they would be they would post every day, and all of a sudden for two weeks there's nothing. So I look for these patterns. So you want to look for behavior that is a departure from their norm. Now, I want to say something to parents, and I'm just going to tell one on myself. As much as I know about emotion regulation and psychology, I've had challenges with my children and them wanting to like not be here because they weren't able to see past whatever they were challenged with. So suicidal mm, thoughts don't discriminate. You got to know that. And so you have to make sure that you just equip yourself and you're looking for the signs. So when it does show up, you are equipped and you are prepared. And on and that point, when you, when you mentioned uh, that, um, yeah. literally, uh, uh, Chesley's last post was uh, that morning on January 30th. Uh, her previous post was January 17th. Yes, days. there's a definite pattern. You want to look for people who there's a, a, a very clear line in which they've started to engage in different behaviors. Mm -hmm. Julian. 
Uh, Dr. Byer, first of all, thank you so much for your work. I think it's really important. Uh, we know that uh, in the African-American community, suicides are up. We know that, especially among African-American men, we're seeing more than we see, have seen perhaps in a decade or more. Um, how can I put this? Dr. Martin Luther King was suicidal as a teenager. And this is something that people don't often talk about. And depression tried... his whole life. Yeah, he had depression. But as a teenager, he tried to kill himself twice uh, at, at 13 years old. Um, in the Black community, we don't really talk about mental fitness as much as we talk about physical fitness. And when people say they're depressed or whatever, oh, girl, you need to go talk to your pastor, you know, something like that. How do we get the notion of mental fitness more conversational so that people who need help feel non-stigmatized when they seek it? That's fantastic. Thank you for asking that because I, that's my complaint. We're so conscious of our physical challenges and our physical fitness, but when it comes to mental fitness, it's like, oh no, let's not talk about it because of the stigma attached, which is why I created Mindology Fitness. I make it fun, effective, and affordable. People come to my classes, they love it. It's, it's all about having a great time. It can be fun, it can be cool, but it has to start as a community conversation that grows and to become just a, a normal conversation. We're like, oh yeah, you have a Mindology Fitness coach, who's your coach or whatever you wanna call it. And another thing that I'm doing to um, rectify the challenge that you're saying is present in our community is every Wednesday on YouTube, I am doing free emotional remedy relief sessions. And I'm teaching people how to take care of themselves in a really fun and cool way. I'll give you an example. If you're dealing with anxiety, all you have to do is squeeze your ring finger. Put on some music and squeeze your ring finger. And within two minutes, your anxiety will be, I'd say 70% diminished. So I'm introducing really fun ways. Like you don't have to swallow a pill to heal anymore. Yes, maybe sometimes it's necessary, but if we can have fun and we can dance and make it cool and hip, why not? That's what I'm here to do. That's my purpose. That's what God gave me my breath to do. And that's what I'm doing. So thank you for pointing that out. Troy, how can folks, how can folks um, find you and the work you're doing? Okay, so I am, you can find me at mindologyfitness.com, mindologyfitness.com, also Dr. Troy Byer channel on YouTube. Please join me on Wednesdays. I am there for you. I will be teaching you all sorts of tools and techniques that are organic that you can do to shift your emotion, any unwanted emotion that you don't want to deal with, like that. All right, then. See, Troy, see that when you, when you text the brother? Yeah, right? I love you, Roland. Yeah, she hey. hit me today. She's like, I want to talk about this this week. I'm like, how about tonight? You sure did. <laughs> and there <laughs> you go. Troy, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. All right, you. folks, going to a quick break. We come back to talking about your oral health. Get your mouth right. Some of y'all, don't be trying to turn. Don't be trying to flip right now. Y'all know y'all got some mouth problems. Trust me, it could be an indicator of a greater sickness in your body. We'll be joined next by another sister who's a doctor, dental doctor. You watch Roller Martin Unfiltered on the Black Sun Network.
Start Network is here. I'm real um, revolutionary right now. Support this man, Black Media. He makes sure that our stories are told. Uh, thank you for being the voice of Black America, Roland. Hey, I love y'all. All momentum we have now, we have to keep this going. The video looks phenomenal. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be skate. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. According to the CDC, folks, African Americans are among the racial ethnic groups with the poorest oral health in the U.S., the greatest disparity of children with tooth decay, African-Americans. African-Americans aged 35 to 44 experience uh, untreated uh, tooth decay nearly twice as often as white Americans. The five-year-old survival rate of oral uh, cancers among African-American men is almost half of that of white Americans. Yeah, y'all, oral health matters. Dr. Lucia Johnson, uh, she's the owner of VIP Smiles from Cleveland, Ohio. She joins us right now. Doc, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? All right, so let's get right to this health deal, okay? Uh, and that is um, people, just like we were talking about mental health, people love talking about your physical health, working out. You, you always posting your workout videos, but it is people don't spend a lot of time actually discussing their oral health. Yeah. We see that a lot. I think that people focus so much on their body and their health um, and having medical coverage. We forget that your mouth is the gateway to your body. And so if your mouth isn't healthy, um, it's really a representation of your body. So it should be the reverse. Um, dentists are able to diagnose and treat disease a lot earlier if you're seen on a regular basis. Um, if you think about um, some of the statistics that you brought up, um, when we're talking about the disparities in our, in our um, culture, it's because they're not seen as often um, rather, it's access to health, um, lack of coverage, or just the dental IQ is low. Or well, folks so, say, oh, my goodness, my tooth hurts, now I go. Versus, okay, so here's the question. So how often should we be seeing folks like you? Once a year, once a, every six months, once a quarter? Twice a year for healthy individuals. Um, if you have gum disease, um, which is where you start to lose bone um, and teeth, you should be seen four times a year. Okay, so we're going twice a year. What are we doing twice a year? Is it... You want to get a professional cleaning? 
um, x-rays, we examine your oral tissue, we look for um, any lesions, um, oral cancer, uh, decay, uh, problems. We want to correct how you're brushing, how you're flossing, and really just look at what you're eating. I think that's the thing that links your health um, to dentistry. What do we eat? What are we consuming? What is destroying our teeth? Um, because imagine the hardest mineral in your body being destroyed by what you eat. You could imagine the damage that is doing internally, the soft tissue. So that's really what we're looking for. And when we see a rampant decay, right, when we see multiple teeth, especially in children that are, are, are decaying, the first question is, what are they eating? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm quite sure when folks get in that chair and y'all go, so you flossing? Of course I am. Then you're like, yeah, uh-huh. So why your gums bleeding so fast? Uh, so, yeah. so, 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 so what are the dead giveaways where, uh, that, that you would kind of where folk lie to dentists and within 30 seconds of their mouth open, you like, you lying. Exactly. You lying. Exactly. Uh, flossing is the the hardest thing for people to do because it's technique sensitive and you can tell as a dentist we can tell because typically there's not inflammation along your gum lines if you're flossing consistently if you're flossing once a month you're going to have inflammation so it's not if you're flossing at all it's if you're flossing consistently we actually so what's consistently we recommend that you floss your teeth before bedtime, whatever that is, because what we want to accomplish is you're brushing your teeth um, and flossing and removing all of the food and the bacteria that's accumulated throughout the day before you go to bed. At bedtime, your mouth is very dry, and this is a perfect breeding ground for the bacteria in your mouth to create acid, which breaks down your teeth. Mm -hmm. So you want your best to brush your teeth at bedtime and floss at bedtime. We do recommend flossing at least once a day and um, brushing your teeth twice a day. The other thing about um, flossing, people don't do it properly. Um, a lot of people floss their teeth and they saw back and forth. Uh, we actually recommend that you gently hug your tooth and you really want to focus on the pink triangular area between your gums so that you're... Oh, you, you can go ahead and hold it up. You can hold it up. I said you got props. <laughs> yeah, I have a couple props here. But when you're flossing your teeth, this is a child's um, tooth model here. You really want to focus on this pink triangle. And you should bring your floss along the gum line, right in those areas, so that there's um, contact along the, the, the curvature of the tooth. It's not just to break through and get the food out of your teeth. It's to actually clean along the gum line. Got it. So, so a soft, soft amount of pressure is all you need to do that. And, and that's the, the, the worst thing that I see. A lot of people just don't know how to floss properly. Now, you know doggone well you brush your teeth more than one time a day. Uh, Y'all, we were at the, uh, so the, so the, so the National Dental Association, uh, they had their national conference here. And so uh, I don't know if I spoke that year. I've been, I've spoken several times and I was awarded that year. Man, they had some, they had some food at a reception, y'all. 
uh, and Doc was like, everyone was over. Oh, hold up. I'll be right back. I got to go to my room and brush my teeth. I was like, Doc, we got to go. She's like, no, I brush my teeth after every meal. So you brush your teeth after every meal, huh? Yeah. And, and <laughs> I clean my tongue. I have a tongue scraper. And that's what I recommend, um, especially for adults. If you look at your tongue and the surface of your tongue, it shouldn't be white. All right. That's plaque. So I do want to recommend for all my adult patients. A tongue can, scraper? Tongue scrapers. Yes, absolutely. And, They're very, and that's done what? Same thing at night? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I actually do it every time I brush my teeth. Yeah. And we, I, I brush, yeah. Yeah, we know you do. All right, let's go to our uh, panelists uh, for questions. Uh, I'm a Kong. I'm going to start with you first. Um, thank you. So so timely. My my kids all have dentist appointments in the morning, so this is great information <laughs> to hear. So I'm gonna ask a I'm gonna ask a question that sounds silly, but it's like an age old thing I hear with people: brushing before flossing or flossing before brushing. Does it affect the health of your teeth in any way, shape, or form? No, I actually okay. recommend brushing before flossing. Um, because you want to kind of remove the bigger particles in your mouth before flossing. All right. Thank you. Let's see. Julian, you're next. Doc, uh, thanks for being here. Um, I appreciate you. appreciate the folks on dental health. You know, we have had black children die because they have not had access to uh, proper dental oral care. Does, does, does our healthcare system, and especially, you know, the Medicaid, Medicare, do they provide enough uh, reimbursement, possibility, access for dental health? In my opinion, no. I was a Medicaid provider for 16 years. And after the pandemic, I realized that I could not afford to be a Medicaid provider anymore. It crippled my business. Um, and actually, they didn't reimburse me. And what it is, is in 17 years, we've never had a fee increase. It's the exact same fee schedule. And it just really isn't enough reimbursement. So you'll see a lot of the providers that are taking it, um, like myself, really want to give back. Um, or they have a very large practice where they can substantiate, you know, because of the volume. And, and that's why... It's hard to get appointments at those types of facilities that accept Medicaid. Um, it's very rushed dentistry. It's more like they're processing encounters and you're really not getting the quality of care that we, we should be getting. And yes, they should be reimbursing um, us and they should be giving Medicaid providers increases because we really can't afford uh, for instance, $34 for a cleaning is reimbursed. You can't hire a hygienist for, you know, $34 an hour. So it, it, it's killed, it killed my practice. And mm. I, I really, you know, I've tried to be um, a pillar of the community and in serving in that way. And this year I could not any longer be a Medicaid provider. Jeff, she didn't say it killed her business. She said it killed her business. Now you know oh, yeah, that you killed. know you know how That's bad right. it was when she said it killed <laughs> my business. You know it's bad. You have three three phases of dying business. You have killed, killed, and then killed. 
Yeah. So you want to make sure you don't get to that. So, and if you really get bad, it's kilted it. But when you get to that, uh, <laughs> Dr. Johnson. Hey, let me tell you what type of day I've had. Do not make fun of me, okay? Oh no, we no no no. no we I, oh, I'm gonna make fun of you. So You're let's just be real. <laughs> I'm gonna make fun of you on the show, and then when we get off the air. So don't even sit here. Don't don't be begging for sympathy. Uh, the, yeah, she called me yesterday. She's like, oh, my God. She's like, what are we going to add? I'm like, yo, calm down. You talk to patients every day. Just talk like you're talking to a patient trying to get their stuff together. She was freaking all out. I'm like, child, breathe. Jeff, what's your question? We love you, sis, and you're doing just an awesome job of just telling people what you know. My, my dad used to always say, son, take care of your feet and take care of your teeth, and you're going to be all right. Now, he did tell me to take care of my teeth after he got his first pair of dentures. So uh, I tended to listen to him even more uh, yeah, because that, that struck home. I said, man, I said, you, know, you got that first pair of dentures, man. So I said, I don't want to have to get there. But let me ask a simple question because conversations like these, these are my jam. Shout out to you, Roland, because we've been talking tonight about practical things that can help people actually improve their lives. So to the RMU universe out here, I'm just going to ask a real simple question um, that probably has a lot behind it. How long? Should you keep a toothbrush? Mm. Change your toothbrush every three months. Change your toothbrush every three months. So wow. if you have one of those electrical ones, same thing. Change that wow. brush every three months? Absolutely. Every three months. So that should be in between seeing your dentist. Your dentist usually gives you a new toothbrush on your visit, but you should replace it in between. Well, why, why replace it, though? When people say, well, I can just go a few months, it still looks clean to me. It's just bad hygiene, number one, because you're you're utilizing that maybe twice a day. Um, the bristles start to wear. Um, and then what we usually have is when you use your toothbrush too long, people start to brush too hard. And then they cause abrasion along the gum line and the softer areas on their teeth, which damage their teeth. So it's just better to get a new toothbrush. Also, I'm glad you brought that up. Please buy soft toothbrushes. That was my next question. <laughs> it's a, it's uh. like... So ignore that medium and hard. Exactly. And because there's a market, they still sell them, but they're terrible for your teeth. Plaque is a microfilm. It's very soft. And so you just need a light pressure when you're brushing your teeth and that plaque will come off very easily. The hard tartar, you have to have that cleaned off professionally. There you go. So that's why when you when they got that metal tube and they sitting there, <laughs> 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 yeah. scrape. Yeah, uh-huh. Trust me. That's why. Look, Hazel Harper is my dentist here in DC. Uh, oh, I and, and, and I I drive doc, I drive doc crazy. Cause when I walk in, <laughs> I got my noise. I got my noise reduction headphones, and I'm like, "All right, y'all do what y'all do. I don't hear nothing." <laughs> she she got tapped me on my shoulder, rolling, to ask me a question. I ain't trying to hear nothing in the dentist's office. I ain't try. That ain't gonna happen. Not gonna happen at all. All right, we got lots more questions. We're out of time, so here's what we're gonna do. Uh, you coming back next month? See, I told you it was painless. Painless. I love it. I told you you were freaking Just all like out. You, like unlike visiting you, which is painful. <laughs> <laughs> Lucia, say it again. 
Just like my dentistry, painless. Yeah, uh-huh. Right. Oh, uh, yeah, right, right. That we heard that bullshit before. Yeah, we'd, we'd all heard that before. Oh, it ain't gonna hurt. It's just, uh, I'm gentle with that needle. Yeah, okay, all right. We all done heard that before. All right. So there are a lot of people have a lot of questions. They ask me about mouthwash and toothpaste and all kind of other stuff. We're gonna have you back. Then we'll have the phone lines open for people to call in. They can answer their questions. Uh, so we'll do that. Uh, next month, and so, uh, so again, yeah, see, see, there you go. Now, now you can relax, you can breathe, you can woo saw and stop being all stressed out. Thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> folks, want to know where can they uh, find you? I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm on Instagram, VIP Smiles DDS, um, Facebook, VIP Smiles. And she got all kind of photos on there, folks, uh, of, of folk with, with some teeth, that some before and after shots. So prepare yourself. Yes. Because it's yes. triggering. All right. <laughs> Doc, Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. You guys have a great evening. All right, y'all. We were supposed to end at 8 o'clock because we were supposed to show uh, uh, Deborah Owens uh, uh, first episode of her new show. Uh, but we're going to do that uh, in four minutes at 8.30. Uh, let me thank Jeff Amakongo uh, and Julian for joining us on the panel today. I surely appreciate it. Thank you so uh, very much. We got to a whole lot of stuff. Hope y'all now understand. Again, and I, I, keep, I keep saying this, and, and, and Jeff, people, people keep thinking I'm, I'm, I'm crazy, and they always like, man, you know, why you keep pushing this? I need people to understand, when you watch cable news, they ain't talking about oral health. They're not sitting here talking about suicide. They're not talking about, and not in, in a way that's relevant to us. And so you're going to hear the same thing, Trump's rally. You're going to hear the same stuff. And so I need our people to understand that when we don't have spaces and places where our experts can come and share relevant information with us, then we are walking around clueless. And then on Macongo, we hear folks say, man, well, I didn't know that was going on. What do you watch? That's why, Julian, in that promo, when Jeff says, bring your eyeballs back, too many of us are spending our time, and I'll say it, talking about and dealing with bullshit as opposed to stuff that can be transforming, helping us in our daily lives. And so, folks, that's why we want y'all to download the Black Star Network app. That's why we want y'all to look at these shows, support the folks who are watching. At every available platform, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. Download them on all of those different devices. And, of course, support us with your dollars. Y'all, I'm trying to tell y'all, when you give $50, $100, 200 500 1000 is just as important. And also, when somebody gives us 25 20 10 5 1 trust me, all that matters. It helps us do exactly what we do. Terrence thank Green, you. thank Have you. Have a good so, night. Th Terrence Green, thank you so very much. Uh, thank you so very much uh, to uh, Frederica Mays for supporting us, Lawrence Aldrich for supporting us, Shauna Reeder for supporting us. Uh, Dennis Johnson for supporting us, Larnell Farmer, Charles McLaughlin, uh, thank you so very much as well. Uh, and then also, let's see here, somebody gave you a square, I'm looking for a name, and I don't see the name, I'm trying to find it, my apologies y'all. Uh, but again, I'll read the, some of those names tomorrow. Those are some of the folks who actually gave during the show. Cash Shep is dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. PayPal's R Martin Unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollingatsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Folks, coming up next, the first episode of Deborah Owens' show, Wealthy You. 
Get your finances straight. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Ho! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.